Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. When we make something, we have an opportunity to be in communication with an individual, to show empathy and uh, to have a dialogue. I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David Zwerner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, the artist Jeff Koons and the curator Luke Sison. Over the last three decades, Jeff has built an unmatched global following as a sculptor, painter, and creative visionary with a singular take on pop culture and everyday objects. No topic is off limits for Jeff. Michael Jackson with Bubbles, his pet chimpanzee, mirror-polished stainless steel balloon animals, 40-foot-tall puppies made of living flora, complete with their own irrigation systems, and exquisite porcelain statuary. Jeff's work delights, enchants, and provokes, all at the same time. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, it's great to be here. And Luke Sison is here. Luke is a daring, distinguished curator who's overseen collections at three, really, of the greatest, uh, London's greatest, perhaps the world's greatest museums, including the British Museum, the National Gallery, and the Victoria and Albert. Since 2012, he's been the chairman of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. It's very exciting. To someone who's really never been to a museum, perhaps never encountered a gallery, never seen your work, maybe, Jeff, you can give it a whirl for us sort of how you would introduce yourself to someone who maybe doesn't know anything about you or what it means to make the work that you make. Well, yeah, I'm an artist, and I, I like to work with ready-made objects. And the reason I work with objects or images that pre-exist, uh, it's a way to communicate uh, acceptance, uh, acceptance of the self, and once you learn how to accept yourself, you're able to go out into the world and you're able to accept other people. And my work uses objects and images as metaphor to bring about that type of transcendence within our life. The work of a curator also not familiar to necessarily so many people. How would you sort of describe that or what you do? I think that every curator has in their collection, in a sense, a vast family. It's about really championing the objects. It's making them speak to as large and diverse an audience as, as possible, from scholars to the normal visitor to, to the museum. Mm. So on that note, maybe let's talk about your show at the Met. Luke has a show up right now uh, in the Met Breuer building called Like Life, Sculpture, Color, and the Body from 1300 to Now. The show is up through July 22nd. And it features two works of Jeff's, two sculptures. Maybe you could tell us a bit about those works and how Jeff fits into the vision for the show and sort of the show in general. So Light Life is a collaboration with Sheena Wegstaff, the chairman of Modern Contemporary Art at the Met. And it's been unbelievably exciting and unbelievably challenging. We decided early on not to do a chronological survey of colored sculpture. 
but really to look across time at how artists made works that, in a way, sit between the experience of high art elevated on pedestals, monochrome, encountered in galleries, and what I guess I've always thought of as more popular or, or low art, in a way, found in perhaps the home, but also in, in church processions, in, in fairgrounds, in wax museums. More recently, artists are taking this kind of counter-visual tradition and revisiting it to look at that space that we all have, I think, between art and life. So this is a show which takes historic works from the late Middle Ages through to around 1900 and puts them with pieces that were made in the last 100 years, but particularly the last 30 or 40 years. And how was it finding your work in the context of this show? So two sculptors, Michael Jackson and Bubbles and Buster Keaton, was that a conversation you had with Luke about which works to include? How did that unfold? Uh, I did have conversations uh, with uh, Luke and uh, Sheena. But, uh, you know, I've always have loved this uh, dialogue about the history of polychroming and became really fascinated, you know, learning how in the past, of course, uh, everything was polychromed. And then when they were unearthed, everybody looked at them as these very uh, pure sculptures. And then also in time, how there was a call for a new classicism. And uh, people like Donatello, uh, Riemann Schneider, they'd be making uh, works with just using the pure uh, material. I love when the 2D and the 3D come together. I think that's really when art's at its most powerful. And you've also, in a way, through your work, pushed certain technological limits, new technologies to make new materials. Technology has always been a wonderful tool, you know, throughout history. And uh, whether somebody's using a new type of drill to uh, be carving marble or a, a new type of saw to, uh, uh, to carve wood, and I try to use it to be able to communicate trust with the viewer. Steve Jobs did it with an iPhone or a computer to communicate trust. Artists, when we make something, we have an opportunity to be in communication with an individual, to show empathy and uh, to have a dialogue. And uh, I find all art metaphor for that opportunity to communicate. There are a lot of stories about uh, Steve Jobs putting all the attention, you know, to the inside of the object. I've always have done the same thing to the bottom of an object or something that's never seen. I've used technology in a manner to maintain trust with the viewer. If I'm making a balloon sculpture, I want every twist in that balloon to be authentic. Not kind of a simulation and an idea of a twist, but actually a twist so that I can maintain that kind of suspension of disbelief that somebody's involved with an abstraction for as long as possible. The art is never in that technology. You know, the art comes from a much more profound place uh, within us and uh, the gesture we want to make, and it comes from a very old place. My life really changed when I started to realize that art probably accelerates evolution faster than anything else I know. You know, we look at our human history and we look and we see how we've changed from one species, like a, from a monkey ape and coming up through. And cultural life, this type of 
evolution, we can participate and accelerate our evolution. I think Michael Jackson in Bubbles is referencing this. And so when we open ourselves up to our, our history, it lets us really embrace our potential at a much more accelerated rate. I think above all what the Met documents is the history of humankind's creative impulse. And I, I love what you just said because it hadn't occurred to me that this was a motor, in a sense, for evolution. But actually, I think that's a, a great notion. It's certainly, if nothing else, a symptom of, of, of evolution, and perhaps both. I think that's really, it's really interesting. So we've come back to Michael Jackson and Bubbles, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the piece itself. You said this beautiful thing about that acceleration of evolution being somehow embedded or implicit in this piece. Uh, in 1988, I had an exhibition called Banality, and Michael Jackson and Bubbles was one of the, uh, of the pieces from that exhibition. And the body of work was really trying to communicate to the viewer that their own cultural history is perfect. They're perfect. And art can be something that completely empower you and uh, give you the essence of your own potential, or it's something which can disempower. And the way it disempowers is by having the viewer feel that they aren't prepared. They don't have the information they should have, that uh, they're not perfect. And so the work was trying to inform them that it's all about this moment forward. And that if they love the color pink for pink, that's fantastic. If they love the little tchotchke that was on the side of their grandmother's table, that's as meaningful as respecting the pieta. There's no difference. It's about that excitement you have for your own life because the art is the essence of your potential. And so I knew that I would need kind of spiritual figures there to communicate to people that it's okay. It's okay to go along with banality. Uh, because they would feel kind of threatened. I don't know if I should do this. And so Michael Jackson and Bubbles, uh, he was there as a contemporary Christ figure. In the Renaissance, there was a, a trope, which was, you know, that a great mind of a great connoisseur collector was demonstrated by their ability to recognize the qualities in, in works of art. And I think a lot of what everybody from Vasari to, to Winkelmann to Hegel to Michael Fried, I have to say, um, is doing is, is saying, here are the rules for looking. And, you know, if you don't understand them, I'm sorry, mate, that's, it's not for you. Whereas I think what your work does and what a lot of the traditions that your work refers to are about that breaking down of the, of the barriers between elite and popular. And you're using a medium which, as you say, is both elite and democratic. And that's true of, of wood carving as well. It's not just the porcelain. How did you come to this idea of the way you want to react is perfectly adequate? It it's, to me speaks to some quite fundamental and deep humanism almost. And so how did that emerge for you personally, that you came to this deeply human-centric way of, of making objects? Uh, Lucas, it's been my own life experience. Uh, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania. My aunt would take me sometimes to the Philadelphia uh, Museum of Art. My father was an interior decorator. So I learned aesthetics from my uh, dad, and uh, my dad would have me sometimes paint paintings because uh, I started taking lessons as a child. But I did not have any connection with art history. 
And I wasn't prepared to do anything uh, when it came time to go to college other than to go to art school. And on my first day of art school, uh, we got on a bus and we went to the Baltimore Museum of uh, Art to see the Cone Sisters collection. And I realized I didn't know anybody. I, I didn't know Barack. You know, I didn't know Cezanne. You know, I would have known Picasso, but... And I felt that I survived that moment. And I saw, in time, people around me just kind of falling to the wayside. And I realized that how intimidating art can be. And... Uh, and it should really just be the opposite. So I, I, I survived that. And from that moment, I always wanted to have a connection with art that not only could empower myself, but then I could share that with other people. But Jeff, one thing that's very interesting there is that a lot of people, they think, right, I've got to learn how to be an elite viewer as quickly as I can. It's like it's like making your accent a little posher. And, and it's a very English metaphor. But the, and the, I mean, I'm also fascinated by how you resisted that. You know, I think one of the things that's really funny about museums is that, you know, we now have millions of visitors and we're trying to communicate the power and joy of, a, of an artist like Mantegna or even Cezanne. And yet... Actually, those artists were, were making pieces for a tiny number of people. And somehow you feel as if you, at that moment in the 80s, you were saying, you know, bugger that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to find a, a whole different audience. I'm going to communicate much more widely than any of these people have done because I needed it at the right moment. I, uh, at that moment when I, when I began, Is that, was that it? I mean, what was, what was going through your head? Uh, you know, I think uh, having kind of a liberal arts background in college, I went to uh, Maryland Institute College of Art and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, but uh, taking some sociology classes, you know, reading a little uh, philosophy, enjoying Dada and surrealism, I, I started on this path of, you know, being involved with personal iconography and going inward. And, uh, you know, a lot of the paintings that I would make would have been what I dreamt the night before. And so this kind of a inward journey. But at a certain point, I, I believe that I learned how to kind of trust in myself. And the last place I wanted to be was within myself. And I wanted to start to go outward. So interesting. I, I think that for me, the journey was kind of the opposite one. I went, I studied at the Courtauld Institute in those days in a, Robert Adam Tarnhouse, we were surrounded by the sort of whole ethos and aesthetic of the 18th century grand tour, delicate plaster work, amazing proportioned rooms. And for me, it was the arrival at the mat to look after decorative arts was part of the, the journey that I had towards understanding that there are whole categories of art that communicate very different ways from those those painters and sculptors that I've been brought up to revere that I still revere but that are only part of the of of the story and you know that's why I got interested in in the art of the of the wax museum or the fairground or the or the church procession because I think that actually as a result you understand also much more than about those revered figures about Michelangelo, about Bernini, because you understand that they they also operated with this kind of tension between the 
need to communicate broadly and the need to please their fat cardinal patrons. You know, what I love about the Renaissance, which is my main period, is that tension arises between works of art that were meant to, for example, teach the stories of the Bible to the illiterate, and then the piece that only Lorenzo de' Medici was going to understand. You know, one of the complications, of course, is that education is one of the great gifts. It's one of the most amazing experiences. But, of course, it introduces that voice that says what you're looking at is not high art or it's not good enough. How do you accept the education, as it were, the philosophy, the reading, the sociology, and maintain a sort of an ability to challenge that voice and really interact with things on your own terms? You know, I would say it comes from mentors. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, looking at art history and just speaking about, you know, the richness, and for me, it's biological. I, I can look at some of the work that I made over the years and I see how important kind of montage has been. And my understanding of my work and my interest, you know, I believe that I'm uh, more involved with uh, kind of a biological montage. And so to feel a connection to Manet, it's not an art historical connection, it's a biological, it's part of my genes. But I remember after my uh, banality show, uh, a journalist asking me, uh, aren't you afraid that it's going to leave you? And they were talking about art. And I thought, what an odd thing to ask somebody. So I thought about, well, what is it that, uh, you know, that an artist can do? What do I do? And I realized that the only thing that uh, I do, or I think that you can do, is you have your interests. And you can focus on those interests. And, and if you do that, it connects you to the metaphysical and to a universal vocabulary. And you realize the abundance of information all around you. And whatever your interests are, you realize the connectivity to that. And so I try to keep everything in play. That's the ideal state because when you uh, don't make judgments, when you don't have hierarchies, when there's no uh, discrimination, it removes anxiety and fear. And when you remove anxiety and fear, that's how you walk out of Plato's cave. That's how you achieve a higher level of consciousness. For me, beauty is the ability to give it up to something outside the self, to find it greater than the self. To me, that's beauty. Is there anything that takes you out of the self, like meditation or exercise or something like that? I like reality TV. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And I, I like everyday life. Uh, you know, I, I have a family, and uh, I, I enjoy family life. I love just the grounding aspect of that and, and the pleasure of trying to find stimulating situations uh, for the whole family to do things, whether it's going to a baseball game or going to, uh, to see something. Don't you think it's also about open-heartedness? I mean, that's what, we're, what we've been talking about a lot, not shying away from experiences or, or the unfamiliar I mean, I love Instagram. I love seeing the whole kind of ways of which people present themselves and the things that they love. And not everybody. I'm bored with pictures of cappuccino. But I do love, you know, that whole vast opening out that the digital world has, has given us that we, you know, and it's, it's absolutely revolutionary. And some of these images that kind of come in and stimulate you and 
But I've bought things that dealers have put on their social media things for the mat. Listen up, everybody, on social media. <laughs> Start posting because it's going to go into the bed. <laughs> but yeah. it, it, so that's a place where um, new ideas come in. Is that is that one source? I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about for someone in your position where new energy, new ideas, outside influences, how they enter your life. Well, it's, again, it's a distinction, isn't it, between maintaining the kind of authority that comes with knowledge and and deep research and and so on. I don't like the way in which. Uh, the democratization to some degree has has questioned the value of expertise. But at the same time, making sure that what we're all involved in is a, is a conversation. You know, the value in any work of art, the Salvatore Mondi that uh, won for such a, a high price, you know, the value uh, would be for the excitement that it could give the viewer and if it does give the viewer that excitement the stimulation the idea of uh, any uh, intellectual aspect of, of contemplation or whatever it may do that value walks out of the room with that individual it's not in that piece it's just a transponder the value is really always how it can change our lives and if the high price of a work of art becomes the kind of hook that's going to get people to just pay it attention, then that's fine with me as well. I mean, it's a, um, we've just done a show at the Met which is called Relative Values, and it's about how much works of art cost in, in the, um, Germany in the Renaissance, and we've done the valuation in, in cows. Um, how many cows was a tankard worth? How many cows was a pottery jug worth? And it's a question people ask all the time. And then you obviously follow it up with, well, why? I mean, why was this more valuable than something else? What, and what do we mean by the word valuable? And, and then you can go on. But if you have a quite simple question at the beginning, you can complicate it afterwards. And if one of the questions is, why does a Leonardo cost more than any other painting, then it's a good question, um, actually. You know, how does, how does this artist who I spent so long thinking about transcend the the art world completely so that, you know, every image, not every, but almost every image that he made is kind of burned into the public imagination and collective memory of all of us globally. I mean, it's incredible. And he's an artist who therefore suddenly, I don't, not, not because he wanted to, he was as elitist as they come, um, but transcends that world in the way that we've just described. I think we should introduce cows to the uh, current current art market. <laughs> <laughs> more, yeah, no, more deals in cows would be would be a good thing. It seems to me. Does it feel like? I think from the outside, sometimes it feels like the Renaissance, in a way, is getting closer to us, in the sense that there are more people more excited to see more Renaissance imagery, more more visitors. Is that something that you you feel, or is it just our moment now and, and a kind of effect of the Salvatore Mundi, among other things? It's such a great question, and I hadn't thought of it. I think that the Renaissance does speak to us more directly, maybe now, than other periods in between. It may be because those works do sit at, at that moment where direct communication and huge artistic ambition were, were combined. One of the things that was fascinating to me about the, the Leonardo show at the National Gallery, but also exhibitions 
like the Sacred Made Real or the late Caravaggio show that we did during my time there, um, great shows curated by others, was that there is a kind of spiritual hunger as well, which I, I think is really fascinating and worthy of analysis. I don't quite know what's going on there, but it's clear that people want it. So Renaissance, obviously, is also well known for these amazing studio practices that developed as well, very complex number of artists developing kind of large atelier practices. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you manage your studio, how you engage with the various parts of it, and, and sort of how that works for you, Jeff. Uh, you know, I used to always just uh, make my work uh, by myself, and then I started to work with different materials where I would need to have a stand welded, so I would go to a welder, and I would have him weld it for me. Then I would get it back and maybe finish it, and I would paint it, but I would go to people that were skilled in specific uh, traditional methods of making things and work with them, one being a foundry. Uh, so I became comfortable working with other people, and so I started to enjoy that because I was also participating in kind of a Duchampian dialogue of feeling that if I was incorporating and I was moving material too much myself, I would become influenced by the material. And even though I had a goal of making uh, one type of image or object starting out, I would end up with something else. So I enjoyed that distance and feel as though any work that I've ever made, I've been in complete control of. And every aspect of the surface or anything about that piece, I'm responsible for and I've uh, controlled. You're not really place. doing anything that's very different from what Donatello did that's in, what the, I was, yeah. in the 15th century. <laughs> I mean, he had his he had his founders. He he experimented with um, molding glass. He you know he carved wood and he modeled clay. And he you know it's a and when he needed people, he he got them in. Um, it's it's makes makes good sense to me. I make very few artworks a year, also, which but there's a whole yeah, different you're perception. Slow. <laughs> Well, because of the care, I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of effort. There's a lot of man hours into uh, each uh, piece. I mean, there there are people really uh, working on things, but the actual number of works, it's not a, a production uh, line. Last question, guys, as we wrap up, what's next? I heard inklings from Luke about a piece in the Mets collection that maybe you were interested in, Jeff, and and maybe that's a kind of nice uh, natural way to talk about what's next. And I'm really grateful to the Metropolitan for uh, working with me, but I'm working on a new series called the Porcelain Series, and the material being used is stainless steel, but uh, using models for these sculptures of uh, porcelain works that range from the 18th century uh, up to the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And the work that the Metropolitan Museum has in their collection is called The Music Lesson. And it's from the uh, Chelsea Porcelain Factory. That's right. You're making this over life size in steel with colored, colored surface using a scan that we've, uh, we sent the piece down to Baltimore, um, back to Baltimore again. It's worth describing in a bit of detail because this is a piece that um, was based on a Boucher print, as Jeff says, 
So it's already a, a kind of active translation, again, into, into three, di three dimensions and into color. And it shows the, this couple in a kind of flowery, leafy bower. He's teaching her how to play the pipe. And I have to say, I slightly wondered if it had drawn you to it. And then I saw this phallic pipe going between the, the, this young girl's lips. And I thought, oh, okay, I, I get it. So uh, the work will be, you know, quite large, over 100 inches, and uh, all in uh, mirrored polished stainless steel. And then uh, exactly where all the colors are on the original model, uh, we're able through scanning practices to capture all that information and then to transfer it on this enlarged stainless steel model. We're refashioning the British Decorative Arts Galleries, and this piece will be a star work. Jeff's helping making Chelsea Paulson sexy again, which I'm quite happy with, frankly. Well, lots to look forward to. A beautiful new presentation in the fall and a wonderful sounding new piece by Jeff. Guys, thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Lucas, thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Werner and Slate Studios.